Yes, yes. Omega Watts in the house. Now let me set the table, now, now, now let me set the table Invited to the banquet, I'm glad that you could make it Invited to the banquet, I'm glad that you could make it the questions I ask myself How's it going, table fam? All right, all right, that was like adequate energy to start the night, I feel good All right, if we haven't met before, my name's Corey, I'm the online pastor over there at First Orlando And uh, I'm just pumped to be here, mainly because Isaac and Lauren and the table staff are some of my favorite people to hang out with. And so if you are here, you get the privilege of hanging out with them every Tuesday. And I just want you to know that it is a privilege to hang out with people like Isaac and Lauren and be led by that staff and the awesome volunteers that exist back there because they are incredible. Do you know that? No? Okay, cool. I'm telling you, they're incredible. Uh, And their hearts for you and their hearts for a generation of people who will be moved by God to hospitality and generosity and family and belonging is incredible. And that's something that should move this guy right there. Excellent job. All right, thanks for taking the cue. All right, so we're going to talk tonight. We're going to have some fun, but I'm just, first of all, really grateful to be here. And we're going to talk about messy church. Okay, messy, anybody like just notoriously messy, like you're just a messy human, you want to own it right now in front of everybody, that guy, thank you. Me too. I'm also messy, and I love a good mess. It's a family value that we love a good mess, and messes are important because we get to have fun and make a mess, and then we get to have fun and clean it up. And so messes are important, and like Pastor Isaac said, uh, Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinthians and the church at Corinth to help them because they are a bit of a mess. And we're going to unpack tonight, I get to unpack something that's just so exciting to talk to a group of single adults, or for the most part, you're single. Some of you are dating, some of you are married, but for the most part, you're probably single. Anybody in here married? Like my wife is back there, like three of you. Cool. Okay, for the most part, I get to talk to a bunch of single people about marriage, right? Isn't that super exciting and awesome and pumped? Are you ready to hear about marriage? Cool. All right, awesome. That was what I was expecting. So uh, I, I don't have any like tricks for you. It's just going to be the most boring hour of your life. Okay, cool. Excellent. We're off to a great start again. These are three for three on how I plan to start. So I'm going to go home and uh, we're going to move right. No, uh, Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthian church because they're a mess. Because what's happening in Corinth is pretty confusing to a generation coming up in a city that is ruled by pleasure, that is ruled by pride and greed and power. And it's pretty centrally located. And it's a place where commerce is booming and education is booming. And things are happening, yet the inequality gaps are increasing. And Paul writes a letter to the church of Corinthians because there's a mess taking place. And specifically in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he deals with some things and some questions they have about sexuality, about dating, about singleness, and about marriage. And he answers some of those questions, but he answers them in a way understanding that there was a generation of students turning into adults in a city that was ruled by pleasure. And that's confusing Because kids, I'm like, I have a seven and five-year-old, right? They should not have instant access to pleasure. Yet the church of Corinthians did. There were temples to sex. And there were temples that were full of prostitutes and people who are slaves whose primary existence in that area was to just please a person. Sometimes not even for pay, just because they were a slave, they had to. So we're talking about a city that is just rife with conflict and inequality, and Paul takes the chance to write a letter to that church 
And he says some things that are pretty like relevant to each and every one of us. And they're also just a little bit uh, frustrating to hear. And they're a little bit antiquated even as we read it through a 2022 lens. And so when we read Paul's letter and when we look at scripture and when we entertain what God says to us about marriage and sex and dating, what we have to, have to, have to understand is that God wants those things for you and that they're incredible, right? They're beautiful things that we ought to get to engage and yet they're really important and we should take them a little seriously even when we're not married. And a lot of us, if you came up like I did, you had some examples for marriage that made marriage look terrible, okay? And everybody, before we even jump into scripture or any storytelling from my life or anything like that, we've just got to understand something. When we talk about marriage, each of us comes to it with our own examples of what we have seen and what we've experienced. And some of those are incredible. My wife had incredible parents with a beautiful marriage, and they're just like the sweetest people ever. I had a very different experience, and I saw something very different. And many of you, that's an experience that you could probably relate to. Some of you have great experiences, some of you don't. And when we talk about marriage, it kind of can evoke some strong uh, reactions to lean in and be excited because all the girls are like, oh, marriage, I can't wait till bingo till I meet my husband. It's going to be awesome. Okay, breakfast is not a sexy meal. Don't meet your husband eating breakfast. Okay, just don't do it. It's not cute. Okay, all the ladies are like, oh, seriously. All right, uh, so marriage is this thing that can evoke some pretty strong reactions in the room as big as this and as young as you all are, because marriage as an institution feels antiquated to talk about sometimes. feels like ancient, because it is. It's 4,000, 5,000 years old, right, as a, as a concept and as a thing that humans have practiced. It's pretty antiquated, but it can evoke some feelings based off what we've seen and experienced and based off what we've been taught and what we've been taught explicitly and what we've been caught, like what we've caught implicitly. Because I was shown an example of marriage that was pretty loveless, pretty contractual, uh, pretty angry, pretty violent. My wife had a very different example of what she saw. And then what I was taught, I grew up in church. Anybody grow up in church? Okay, so you got some really weird teachings about marriage and sex, right? Like the Bible's full of weird terms about how we do that and what we talk about. It's like all this flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. It's like all these giggly terms that are just like, why not just say sex? Like what's going on in the Bible? Um, like why not just appropriately name the things? Okay, it's fine. But whatever, it's just pretty giggly and pretty awkward. So we'll talk about that a little bit too. But it's important to acknowledge what we've been taught. What I was taught was that marriage was a thing you had to do to propagate the earth with your children. Like it was just a thing. We had to have kids because we had to have kids. And nobody looked like they were very happy about that, which is confusing because I'm married now and I know that, that, how that works and it's very fun. So it's just weird. I'm like, I don't know why you're all so miserable. Um, and it was just one of those things though. It was like what I was taught was that this is a contract and a way to advance whatever. And, and all of us have some kind of like example or experience, painful or positive, and somewhere in between that we have to acknowledge before we can approach Scripture. And especially, I think it's cool, because Paul's doing the same thing when he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. He's acknowledging an ancient truth in the way that God teaches us about marriage and the gift that he gave us in Genesis when he talks about Adam and Eve, and we'll talk about that. But he's acknowledging that it's a really important but ancient thing that has to be applied to this culture that is growing and changing. So why talk about marriage with a group of single adults and young adults in Central Florida? Okay, it's because we live in proximity to some of the most iconic marriage stories in our era. Okay, Cinderella's castle is like 10 minutes that way. 
Okay, there's some pretty unrealistic expectations that many of us have been grown up on and formed around. Harry, Ron, and Hermione, whatever that weird thing is, they've got a castle over there. Like, they've got a love triangle for themselves. Like, if you came up with some bad examples for marriage, culture has also done a poor job informing that. Yet, Orlando, we just built monuments to that. We have a beast and bell in a yellow thing over there. Like, what's happening? Okay, we live in a city that is just, it has a lot of entertainment. And it is, in fact, primarily the way that this place has grown up is around entertainment and around happiness. Okay, we the happiest place on earth. Come on. I love Disney World. Either this is not me bashing Disney World. I mess with some Disney World, okay? We didn't have AC on Friday. We didn't have power. I had so much to do. I was like, babe, we're going to Disney World? She's like, yep. Okay. I love it. Okay, this is not me bashing those things. That's me saying we got to get our priorities straight. We got to understand culturally what we have been shown, and many of us, what we've been taught and what we caught was inadequate for the world that we're about to inherit. Do you hear me? There are things about when we talk about marriage and it feels kind of antiquated and whatever. Our culture tends to move on from those things in a culture of moments and viral experiences and quick, instant gratification. When we are uh, confronted with some ancient or old things, the tendency is to just label it bad or negative or to go, well, it's problematic. And that's true. There are problematic things that are ancient and historical, but we shouldn't throw all the problematic things out. We should acknowledge them. And in my life, Marriage was not a thing that got a lot of conversation in environments like this. And I wish it had. And I wish I had had that earlier. Because I'm married now going on nine years, so I'm an expert in marriage, obviously. No, there's no such thing as an expert in marriage. Anybody who tells you that, pretends to be that, is just a liar and you should leave. Okay? Especially if they're on your social media feed. Like, I love TikTok, y'all. I love learning things on the, I love learning on the internet. There's just some things that we shouldn't lean into the internet for. And marriage advice, it's one of them. Okay, did you know you could cook chicken in NyQuil? Did you, I learned that on TikTok. You can learn a lot of things. It's a joke. It's not a good idea. Don't do that. Okay, it was a serious issue. Don't do it. Okay, but you can learn a lot of things, and there's a lot of people walking around like they are gurus on how to be successful in relationships and how to offer you happiness and all of that stuff. And I get that that is alluring for the, for the moment, but there is so much more to marriage and to relationships, and God wants us to experience that. But we've got to acknowledge what we saw, what we've been taught, and then what we desire. We've got to start formulating some desires, because if you don't, then culture will teach you what to desire, and you'll end up in a pretty contractual or loveless or miserable marriage, okay? Because here's the bottom line of tonight's talk, and I'm going to give it to you early because it's got some words in it that we need to unpack together, is that marriage does not exist to make you happy. It exists to make you more holy. And you're like, duh, I know a lot of people who are married, and they are not happy. Anybody know some unhappy married people? You're like, this is guy's an idiot if he thinks married people are happy. You probably know some married people, and they look stressed out a lot, right? They, and if you've had an experience with marriage that is unhappy, this would kind of like, duh, to you. And that's okay. We'll talk about happiness in marriage in a little bit. But I want to spend some time on holiness. Marriage is a kind of an antiquated and older idea. We find it early in Scripture. Holiness is an equally old idea. And for many of us, the word holy is not found anywhere but like preceding a curse, you know, like holy. And I love a good curse, don't get me wrong, but like that's not what we're talking about tonight. Thank you for that one laugh. Okay. Um, this is not like very rarely in culture do we encounter something that represents or names itself holy. 
The only other example I could think of beyond uh, a holy curse would be a Justin Bieber song, the holy, 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 that's the only one I could think of. And very rarely in between there are there other examples of what it looks like to be holy or know what holiness is. And so for our purpose tonight, I'll give you a very like broken down version of what that is. And then I want to read a quote from a really awesome person. But holiness, marriage exists not to make us happy, but to make us more holy. And holiness looks like becoming more like God every day. Mother Teresa, one of the most, in my opinions, holy people, and the way that she lived and the way that she acted and the things that she did, she acted out holiness more like God every day. The things that she did with her life were incredible to me. She wrote this quote, or she said this quote. It says, holiness does not consist... Uh, does not consist in doing extraordinary things. It consists in accepting with a smile what Jesus sends us. It consists in accepting and following the will of God. And in a culture like ours today that teaches a lot of and represents and celebrates a lot of instant gratification and a lot of the, the way I live matters more than X, Y, and Z, what was happening in Corinth when Paul wrote his letter was that people were becoming so used to instant gratification through sex primarily, but through lots of other ways. People were becoming so numb to other humans, it was causing like a real degradation of society. And so there was like this call to try and awaken a generation of people who were clueless about love and intimacy because they had no adequate example. Their parents had basically advocated or abdicated their roles and just left this young generation coming up in this city of booming commerce and booming trade and all this. And the parents are kind of gone. Like there's not a lot of instruction culturally other than what the Greeks were like explaining at that point and their kind of common uh, way of life was that you had self-control over your body. You exhibited self-control if you were pleasured all the time. Like that was the mark of a winner in that society. Okay, that's overwhelming. Imagine being your age in a culture that just says all the time, go pleasure yourself, have fun, enjoy life. That's it. That's all that matters. And when you are pleasured all the time, then you are in full control of your body. Okay, that is an unrealistic expectation of ways to live. Nobody on this earth could be that happy all the time. And if they are, we can slap them. Okay, because that is, no one wants to be around somebody that happy all the time. I get sad. Do you get sad? Okay, happiness and pleasure, those are not the things of life. The things of life are far more hard to acquire. And I hope that you will be drawn in by that idea because I was not. So much of my teaching and instruction around marriage and formation was that it was instant and that it was contractual and that it wasn't that eternal. And yet, Scripture informs some things Otherwise, So I want to look at the beginning of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, God is creating the world. Okay, and whether you believe this is metaphorical or literal or not at all, we're going to read the story and we're going to embrace some of the unknown and the mystery together. Can you do that with me? In Genesis chapter 2, after God has created the earth, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So he made Adam. He created Adam. He created the stars and the sun. He creates the earth. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God 
creates marriage, creates Eve, is what happens next, because he looked at Adam and he saw that he was lonely, that it wasn't good that he should be alone. So when I talk about marriage is not happiness, it's a way to achieve more holiness, it's a way to become more like God, I'm talking about how God recognized a need in Adam that lives in each of us, and that is a desire to be known and not alone. Each of us has that desire. And so whether you're here and you're like, I cannot wait to get married, it is the next thing on my Pinterest board and my Baptist girl to-do list. Or you're like, I will never get married, that is dumb. I like doing what I'm doing, it's working for me. Wherever you are on that spectrum, it should draw you in that when God created marriage 4,000, 5,000, whatever amount of years ago, he did it because he saw a need in humanity to not be alone. So whether you're like marriage is great or whatever, you should be intrigued by that because all of us, no matter our uh, experience with marriage or relationships or sex or intimacy, all of us have that same desire to be known and to know. So in verse number 19, now out of the ground, uh, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam is naming all the animals. He's given everybody a good try. And the, the, you know, he's given everybody, he's naming giraffes, platypus. That was creative, right? Like all these other ones. Then the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God watched him, right? Create names for all the animals. And God maybe thought he got close when Adam found the dog. He was like, oh, cool dogs, man's best friend. Like we thought, oh, maybe he's got a companion. Nope, didn't work out. And so God puts him to sleep. And in this next chapter, or next verse in 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, the man said, this is just like some of the funny language that I grew up with around marriage. The man said, like the man's the most important thing. Okay. All right. Uh, this last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What like a not romantic way to talk to your wife, right? Like you're mine, baby. Like that's just not, that is just not, in case you're curious, because many of you are not married. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh is just not going to do it for you tonight. Okay. Um, so she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked in front of each other, never met, didn't know each other. They were naked in front of each other and not ashamed. What an accomplishment. Okay? That's impressive. That should again inform something about marriage that intrigues you because it's just so other. It sounds a little dated in the language that we use, and it feels a little restrictive because it is, and yet there's something so good there, naked and unashamed. To know someone wants to know you, and to stand in full transparency and feel no shame in front of another, that's marriage. That's a picture that should delight and intrigue you, right? Right? 
And it informs something about how God made marriage not to make us happy, but to make us holy. Because what we see in this, and so we have this, these words that he uses, a bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, uh, we two shall become uh, one flesh. And I'm getting this picture, I'm like, they're kind of dancing around. And then in uh, chapter 3, Genesis describes the fall and Satan tempts Eve and she eats an apple and she gives it to Adam and he eats the apple and they sin and they get kicked out of the garden. And that's in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, it starts with this line and I love it because again, it teaches us something really neat about the character of God and his heart and his hope for marriage. And Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived. You all know what knew means? They did it. They did. They had sex. Yes, they did. Okay, he knew his wife. All these giggly language words for getting to, you know, have intercourse in marriage, right? Why would scripture dance like that? Because I think there's something so powerful in the fact that Adam knew his wife after they had sinned. And I think there's something so important about when you are a human and you've decided to commit your life to another you want to be known, and you want to be known even after your worst moments. Man, again, that should intrigue us because how many times in culture, how many times in life and in love and in relationships in 2022, the moment things are a little bit turbulent, boom, we're out. Boom, that ugliness in you is not attractive to me. I'm out. Instead of in marriage, what happens is it's the ugliness in you that delight, and I get to experience that with you, and we get to learn and grow together. So what, how do I know God made marriage to make us holy, not happy? He created people to know people, right? He created Eve out of a desire to help Adam not be lonely. He created people to know people, but he created marriage so that you could know your person, whomever that is. He created marriage so that you could know your person, so that you could be known by your person. And Paul talks about it at the, uh, a little bit, like marriage isn't always for everybody. It's why it says marriage is created to make you more holy. You can be holy without marriage. You can be like God without marriage. It is just that in marriage, God designed so many great opportunities for you to be known by your person. And in a culture that teaches gratification instantly or quickly or simply or easily, I think we've got to look at life We've got to look at what we've seen and experienced, what we've been taught and what we've caught, and then what we desire and go, oh, I think we've got to want something culturally that's different. I think we've got to chase something harder. I think we've got to chase something together that's got a higher bar because what's been going on doesn't feel like it's working for me. Is it working for you? Is, is the casual nature of sex and intimacy and commitment and dating working? Does that feel good? Maybe momentarily. But I'm telling you, the best stuff, and I'm only eight and almost nine years into marriage, the best stuff is the stuff that we've worked at for years, is the stuff that, that I've had to give over because I trust and I'm willing to be known by my person. And that's a hard thing to do. But we all have a desire to be known. And to give yourself over to be known by someone means exposing some of the ugliest, most like painful parts of your life. And that's not, an, again, not a very attractive thing because it requires intentionality and it requires purpose and it requires a lot of work and a lot of effort. 
So we're going to look at Paul now in Corinthians 1. He was writing to a culture that was very much like this, right? He's saying to them, there's greed and there's power and there's pleasure that rule your day. And they had questions because they didn't have good examples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. And all the men are going to wait out back and try and beat me up later, right? You're all very bummed about that statement. I get it. Okay, but it is good. Hear me, hear scripture, hear God, hear Paul, hear Pastor Corey, hear Pastor Isaac. It is good to abstain from sexual relations. I know that it is not exciting. And I know that it would be very other for you to proclaim that and live that in a public lifestyle kind of way. I get it. I'm not asking you to go martyr yourself for purity. That's not it. Okay, and purity culture did a lot of damage to what we talk about when we say uh, abstain from sex. What I mean when I say that and when I teach that and when I do premarital counseling and I sit with young couples who are obviously so in love, oh my gosh, it's disgusting, okay? (laughs) They have no clue, and it's just beautiful. And at the same time, they're like, it's just so easy to be together. We have no conflicts. We just love. I'm like, wait till year one. Wait till year two. It's hard. It's hard. And let me tell you, you think you know, maybe depending on what your experience is, you might have really great experiences in relationships with other people. You might know that. Listen, it gets better. It continues to when you do it right. But it becomes that way when you give yourself over to be known by someone. When you tap into the holy desire that God saw in Adam to be known and not be alone. And then later it says that he needed help. Adam needed help. Man, we all need some help and we all don't want to be alone. And so regarding the questions you asked, abstain from sex. Verse 2, but because there is so much sexual immorality around you, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Y'all, it was so bad in Corinth that husband and wife were not sleeping together. He had to literally say, sleep together, guys. Stop running around with other people. Okay, that's pretty extreme. Okay, their questions were around like, what is what marriage and sex? What does that mean? Okay, you should be monogamous. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's designed for one person and one, like, that's it. Why? Because knowing somebody Knowing somebody, that requires time, effort, and energy that you don't get from one night or one week or one month or one year. Knowing somebody and then in return being known by somebody, it takes time and it takes transparency. It takes work and it takes energy. So he said to the husbands and wives. You should be sleeping together exclusively because there was so much of that going around. And in verse number three, this is where it starts to get really awkward and a lot of everybody just turns off their ears because it sounds really uncomfortable. All right, so let's just go there together. Do you, do you, are you looking? Okay, it's going to be really awkward when you see the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs and the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. Any feminists in the house going to light their hair on fire? Cool. Um, And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Okay, did you catch that? It's mutual. It's not one over the other. But man does not get to control woman. Woman doesn't get to control man. That's not what God was designing in the way that he was instructing us. In the examples that we had in Adam and Eve and in the way that Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he's not writing dominance. Man, he is writing humility. He is writing romance. Do you know how incredible it is to take your desires and submit them to another person? to say, here is all of me, the parts I want you to know and the parts I don't want you to know. And I'm going to let you steward that. And in return, I'm going to steward your parts 
the parts that you want me to know and the parts that we can't quite know yet. And that happens, and over time, when you submit, like Paul is writing here, the wife gives her authority over her body to her husband, and that takes so much trust. And depending on your experience and what you've seen and experienced, right, and what you've been taught and what you've caught, that might be a really difficult barrier, almost traumatic. For me, it's traumatic to try and do that work, to try and sit there and say to my wife, here's the things that I've experienced. This is why it's so hard for me. Man, those are exposing conversations. Those are uncomfortable conversations. And culturally and in my life, I had no good example of how that operated. What I knew of marriage was loud and was angry. Or it was quiet and it was passive-aggressive. It was clinical and academic. It wasn't, how can I give myself over to you? And how can you steward that back? It was not this. It was not what Paul described. And I imagine for many of us, it's similar to this. You probably have some varied pictures that make it hard to want to give authority over your life to somebody. But it's not just physical, and that's what we have to catch. There's so much about it that we have to learn, 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 because... Uh, when you don't get this part, the mutual submission that I give authority to you and you give back to me and we work together, when you don't get that part, you become very selfish and very isolated. And when parts of you that you don't want known need to be known, okay, when the things that you have hidden about yourself or you decided to try and fix yourself need to be known in relationship, because they do need to be known. We all want to be known. It's just scary. It's just hard to know how people are going to respond to the parts of you that you've hidden away or that you've never shared. But in marriage, this is the beautiful thing about that covenant and the way that God designed it. In marriage, those are the things that you can't run from. You shouldn't run from. You can. But when you run towards the mess, come on, messy church, when you run towards the mess, what you've done is you've created an opportunity for God to take the weakness in you and the weakness in you and make it strength. Okay, my weakness is made perfect in his strength. Come on, God is with you in the weakness of marriage, but it is so difficult to want to practice that, right? It's so difficult to want to be disciplined. So there's a phrase that we use that is relevant to you wherever you are in marriage, dating, whatever. It's something that has helped my wife and I stay not selfish for a lot longer than we ought to have, and it's this phrase. It says, in marriage, uh, it is about we and us on the bus, not about me and mine on the train. Okay, marriage is about we and us on a bus together. Going a direction that, would you ever go on like a youth group bus trip or any like athletic trips in a bus? Okay, were those not some of like the most fun and most miserable times of your life? Okay, have you ever been on a youth group trip with no AC? Middle schoolers stink. Okay, a football game. Okay, a bus ride home after a football game. But at the same time, being on a bus together, committing to go to a destination with my wife meant that we were going to go together, but we were going to take potty breaks. We were going to stop and get snacks. We were going to take a detour. There are going to be hurricanes that disrupt our travel plans, right? There's all these things that happen when you take a bus. But when you get on the train, the train is going. That destination is set. And for those of you who just love being single, you get to, you get to make the train. Like, it's your path. Live your life. It's excellent. But when you do that in a marriage, when you go from being a bus, which is what God intended you to do, it's an us bus, is what we say. Get on the us bus when I'm being an idiot. She's like, Corey, get on the us bus. Ugh, it's dumb, but it's good because the us bus requires all of us together. Now I have two kids. I have a niece. I have a father-in-law. If I'd want to go off in a direction that is me-centered, that isn't submitted to my wife, it isn't honoring all that she wants me to know about her, 
and doesn't want me to know about her. If I'm not honoring that, I'm just off on my own in the train, man, I'm going a direction that will cause so much damage in my wake because I've left my people behind. And all of us have a desire to know and be known, and God designed marriage so that we could know our person and so that could be us together on that journey. Because marriage is intended to help us become more holy, more like God, because he created it in response to loneliness. Anybody experience loneliness as a single person? Like, that's a, it's a lonely time, okay? If a pandemic happens and you're alone by yourself, that's a lonely time. There's so much to be learned and practiced and prepared for in marriage that sets you up to be a person who is on the us bus. But it's a tough one. Sarah and I get asked this a lot uh, when we do premarital counseling, and because we're pretty young, I was a campus pastor before we moved here, and a lot of people would come up to me and they'd say, Pastor Corey, in your marriage, who makes the final decisions if you're in a disagreement? I'm like, it's a good question. I'm so glad you asked. We do. And they're like, right, right, right. But if you're in a disagreement about something really important, who makes the final call on what you're going to do? I'm like, we do. Like, that is, that's not an answer. I'm like, no, it's the truth. Because we're both mutually submitted. That's what Paul kind of teaches there, right? We're, we submit, right? If we want to make a decision, and I'm a yes and she's a no, and my first thought is how do I get my answer or my preference done, we've got more damage to the relationship than I thought. My first thought should be, mm, why is it this way? And how can I give my wife authority in me and over me? And how then can she give it back? And how can we work together? My concern is not how do I get my way. Okay, that is a very base concern. We've got to work past that one. Getting your way is what toddlers do. Working together is what adults start to do. And if you haven't had good examples of that, it's hard because it feels like you're losing. It feels like temporary, it's loss. I didn't get my way, darn. But let me tell you, when you sacrifice for a person you love and you take more time for them and their needs and you spend time to know them in all of the ways that God designed them to desire to be known, that is a holy thing. It is a thing that brings so much joy and so much delight. But it's hard. And I'm not, gonna try and, I'm not trying to make it sound easy. Some of you are like, man, marriage sounds terrible. That's cool. That's good. Uh, it's not. Um, <laughs> but preparing for it's hard. And I wish someone would have talked to me about that because the first few years of our marriage were so difficult because I hadn't fully examined what I had seen and experienced and I hadn't fully reckoned it with what I had been taught. So marriage was hard for us. I want to read another passage in Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 6, and I'll kind of close here because Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. Paul's highlighting here that marriage isn't for everyone. It's a choice you make to be submitted and known by another because that's what many of us need. It's not what everyone needs. Some people are incredibly uh, satisfied and known in singularity, and that's a beautiful thing. And Paul is giving us that permission. But I think he's also in that is giving us the warning of marriage, in that marriage is beautiful. It makes you more holy. doesn't always make you more happy. It is glamorous, but it's gritty, right? It's tough when you do it right. But man, shouldn't we want something that's gritty and hard that we work for? So I wrote it this way for us to remember 
Marriage is the thing we do together on the us bus. It's a thing that God designed us for to know our person, but it makes us 10 times uglier. Marriage makes you 10 times uglier. That's just like a fact. It makes you 10 times uglier. When you see the person you married in the morning for the first time, y'all, I'm ugly. Okay. Sarah's not. She's beautiful. She wakes up looking like Sleeping Beauty every day. But it, no, there's so many things when you, when you are married. It's not true. It's just not. She knows that. Okay. Realistic expectations. Okay. I said Sleeping Beauty. That's why I had to go back because Disney has informed so many unrealistic expectations for women and wives and for husbands and gallantry and respect and all of that. So much of culture for many gender roles has been aggrandized to be ways that we get power and that we get position and that we exercise greed and we exercise our, self, uh, our selfishness and not our selflessness. And that's just not it. Because marriage makes you 10 times uglier, but it makes you 100 times more attractive. When I know, when Sarah sees in me that my selfishness or that my pride is aware, awake, and she's like, Corey, you acted so dumb there. I'm like, oh, now it is a gift of God when she's able to help me be self-aware. But not everybody has that, and not everybody wants that. Not everybody wants to be self-aware. And I'm not saying if that's you in this room that you're not self-aware, but we should try and examine some self-awareness here. Self-awareness is tough. Marriage is a built-in way to have that. But all of it is informed by the delight that God has when you are known and not alone and when you are able to receive help, much like he saw Adam needed help. He created Eve so that Adam could be known, so that Eve could be known, so that they could have help, so they could know each other in ways that without marriage you don't get to know. And in fact, when you know people outside of marriage, what it does is it, it complicates and it numbs us to the work that God has called us to. And really, it comes back to this. God recognized that without something, we were all alone. So he loved us so much, he sent Jesus to die on the cross. And Jesus came with all power and authority from heaven. And instead of saying, I have the authority, everybody could just come and be healed by me and my strength, Jesus said, I lay it all down and I go to the cross and I die for humanity to experience unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness. That's a beautiful thing. That is a snippet of what you get to experience in marriage. It all comes back to, as Paul writes to the church, it all comes back to Christ crucified and what his hope gets to bring to a marriage, to your experience that hasn't been great. If I get the band to come join, we're going to wrap up. Because I don't know where your experiences are. I don't know how you feel even right now as we talk about marriage and what that evokes in you. But for me, it was a lot of wounds. It was a lot of things that were not right or holy or like God. It was a lot of me needing to work out some stuff. And so I don't know where you are. But as we sing tonight and as I pray, my challenge, my encouragement, my exhortation to you is that we've got to consider what we've seen and experienced, what we've been taught and what we've been given. And we've got to reckon it with what God has given to us, which is a pure and holy thing that's got to be treated well and that takes a lot of work. So let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your son, and his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness for us. I pray that you move in our hearts as we sing. Help us to be restored. 
heal wounds around marriage and romance. God, bring no shame, but bring uh, freedom to each person here struggling with how they might find holiness in you in marriage. What an antiquated and frustrating and out of date, yada, yada. God, I pray that you would speak to our heart. God, that we would be known in this moment by you. That our desires, God, would be set free by you and that we would submit them back. God, I pray that we would experience that freedom and that hope and that joy tonight as we sing. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. You go ahead and stand with us as we sing.